Hey, this is a Hakawati production. Hey friends, welcome to the men's room. In light of the demonstrations that have been taking place in Lebanon, we have a very special guest. But before I get to it, I just want to remind you to click subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Like many things, it's a small gesture that means a lot. Our guest is Dr. Rami Al-Ali, an assistant professor of philosophy and the coordinator of the philosophy program at the Lebanese American University. He's here today to help us gain a better understanding of how Lebanon got to this point. It's being called the October Revolution, and it has the potential to change the course of history in this country and also in the broader Middle East region. Welcome to the men's room, professor. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. You're busy these days. You're pretty uh, involved with everything that's happening in Lebanon, I take it? I'm definitely uh, very involved in what's happening uh, both on the floor and uh, on the on the streets, hopefully uh, for the good of the country. So there have been protests in Lebanon many, many times before, but this one is quite different. Can you explain how it's unlike anything uh, we've ever seen before for people who are not that familiar with the history of the country? Yeah, I mean, I should just start by saying that I've only really been uh, deeply involved uh, since my return in 2014, late 2014. I know, of course, that there were protests earlier and they were big protests and that's what created this kind of two-sided division. Uh, But I do think that the uh, protests that are happening today are much bigger. uh, Well, here's some ways that they're different. They're much, much bigger. They're much more diffuse. Uh, So this means that they're not all happening in Beirut. They're happening in places where they traditionally wouldn't happen, like Sur or Tripoli or so many different spots in the country. Uh, There's never been the sense that all of Lebanon is protesting. It's not just Beirut protesting. It's not somebody protesting on behalf of others. It's everybody is protesting. So there's the diffuseness, the scope of it, just the size of it. You know, I wasn't in the country when everything started. I arrived on day five. And on day five, Uh, the number of people who were there was much larger than the largest time I had seen uh, people gather in Talayat Rehetkon in the garbage crisis, which was a couple of years, uh, some years ago. Um, So that's incredible. It was just, you know, uh, mind-blowing to see this many people, you know, still moved something like five days down the line. And the fact that, you know, this is continuing. We, We shut down the country for a week. That's incredible. So that's on the one hand. Here's another way it's different is that for the first time you see uh, uh, people who are traditionally associated with uh, traditional political groups speaking up against their groups. Uh, there's this uh, amazing poster, you know, that uh, that somebody uh, was holding in the protests that said, "Badi Allah bala hazbu," you know, "Badi bala badi amal bala so everybody was saying they want the values, but they don't want it uh, as it usually comes with, associated with the Hizb. This has never happened before, you know. Everybody has always been killon yani killon, except my dude. Uh, so now you're hearing killon yani killon, which yani killon, you know. So that's another way in which it's huge. Another, a third way I think is that um, what really instigated this is that uh, the condition of the people at large has become devastatingly bad. It's just uh, uh, people are unemployed, they're poor, they're frustrated. They've been so morally degraded by this incompetent government that uh, I think at some point uh, 
it, it stops becoming about what you believe in. It starts becoming about what do I absolutely need because otherwise I can't go on as a human being. Um, you know, in the movie Spartacus, there's a, this, this is Stanley Kubrick's old movie Spartacus where they're talking about the slave revolt. And, you know, at some point Spartacus is asked and he says, look, a slave can fight as hard as it can go because a slave doesn't lose his freedom when he dies. Uh, he loses his slavery. So, uh, People have a real reason to fight today because I think that they recognize it's become impossible to not recognize that they're being enslaved by uh, this uh, failed government. So you're pretty well versed on the recent history. You're also personally involved. You've been a member of the Civil Society Party in Beirut since its inception in 2015, right? Uh, yes, this is Beirut Medinati. Uh -huh. um, but explain for those who don't really know Lebanon that well, what's led the country to this kind of watershed moment? Why now? There's just been an accumulation that has been happening since the end of the civil war. At some point, you know, you can add one grain of sand, one grain of sand, one grain of sand, and eventually you can break down the ton scale, you know, because uh, at some point, one last grain of sand breaks that scale, right? Definitely. Uh, so let's go over those grains of sand, actually. Um, what are what are the specific things that have led to this moment um, as far as you're concerned? Uh, look, first of all, we still, until today, 30 years later, fail to apply the Lebanese constitution. We're literally in violation of our own constitution. We still haven't applied the Taif Agreement, which was supposed to bring some sort of peace to the country. We have continuing electricity cuts, minimally Wait, three Wait, let me stop you there. Explain what the Taif Agreement is supposed to do for the government. How, what was supposed to change? Well, what, what it was supposed to do, I mean, I don't want to go into its details, and I also don't know all of the details myself, you know, all like by heart, uh, but uh, what it was supposed to do is it was an agreement to try and uh, get some sort of stability in the country. So whatever the contents of that agreement are, insofar as we agreed to it, insofar as it was, you know, signed, we have to apply it. Uh, even if we decide that the Taif agreement is no good, we first of all have to apply it and then we can proceed from there. So the fact that we haven't applied it, that we haven't applied our constitution means that we are running in a state of illegality even with respect to ourselves. It's like some Somebody who's betraying themselves all the time, you know, living in a state of self-betrayal. Uh, that's kind of depressing, you know, to think of it uh, in that way. We have uh, repeated apathy and cruelty being displayed uh, towards the poor in the population, okay? Our politicians throw away money wantonly. Uh, they talk big at summits and, for lack of a better word, bullshit others uh, about the state of the country. While at the same time, you know, people are getting poorer and poorer and more desperate. And it's fine, you know, if you're suffering, but you're going to really be upset when your kids are suffering and when your grandkids are suffering. Uh, I mean, in the last few years, we've seen protests with hunger strikes and we've seen people burn themselves to death in order to get the message across to our politicians who sit back and uh, can't agree amongst themselves. They're like a bunch of immature, you know, children. Um, that's that's kind of embarrassing. Um They've kept up systematic nepotism, theft, and exploitation of all governmental institutions. Uh, you can't get anything done in the country. If you need to deal with the government, if you need to renew your passport, you're like, oh my God, what a dread that I have because I have to do this. We failed to apply e-governance and e-banking to ensure mechanisms. So to, we failed to apply both of these things in order to ensure mechanisms of invisible corruption. You have money in a bank in Lebanon, and you know that you can't go to another branch 
of that same bank and talk to them about your account because they don't know. You can only go to your branch of the bank. So what's happening in between the scenes? Like, where is the money being siphoned to? We don't really know what our government is involved in, you know. There's a lack of transparency and there's a clear uh, mechanisms being kept in place to ensure corruption and that corruption is smoothly possible. Um, So... um, There's a failure to update the educational system, which means that they're institutionalizing ignorance and, in turn, bigotry in the country. They're making sure that people don't learn anymore and don't understand and they they feel isolated and alienated so that they can uh, start to be afraid of others. Because when you're ignorant and you see others and you don't know anything about others, you're going to be afraid of them, which makes it much easier to hate them because you have to protect yourself. How are they doing this? Um... By not updating the educational You're system. You're talking about the know? public school system? Yes, but even, you know, like our curriculums are not updated. You know, I'm a philosophy professor and uh, we still have... Uh, in fact, the first year I got here in 2014, I went to this meeting. I think it was by held by the UNESCO. Uh, and they were talking about philosophy and about the philosophy curriculum. Uh, and the take takeaway message that these guys tried to give us was that uh, you should be thankful that there is philosophy at all. Uh, even though we haven't updated it and, you know, people have been paid to update it and then they failed to do their job, but nevertheless got paid. Um, uh, we don't even teach philosophy. We we teach uh, intellectual history uh, or what's called, you know, the history of ideas, uh, but call it philosophy. Like we're literally misinforming people about what we're doing. Um This is just one instance. There's just so many things that are happening. There's continuous siphoning of funds from everywhere and nowhere, whether it's local taxes or international uh, assistance. Even today, you know, when they talk about cooperating, they talk about unlocking uh, packages, you know, that are coming, uh, foreign aid packages. They're abusing other countries as well as abusing their own people. Can you give an Um, example? Uh, about uh, what abusing of, of packet? Yeah, you're talking about foreign packages. What do you mean, like the, well, the financial? Well, there's, uh... there's our government had to agree on something, or our political class had to agree on something in order for us to receive some sort of assistance. I don't remember now the the names of these, you know, institutions or the details of them. But you know, you can look it up in the news. It was recently on there. We have continuously increasing national debt. Okay, like literally billions upon billions of dollars are being spent yearly and and being wasted yearly. Uh, Uh, for a country that's never improving and constantly degrading. We're in a constant state of degradation. This is embarrassing. And worst of all, this is causing like moral degradation in the people. People are nasty to each other now, you know. Uh, People are rude. They feel enmity with each other. I want to say, you know, this is all before this happened. Today, I don't think that uh, really, if you want to come to a friendly Lebanon, you come to this Lebanon right now, because there's never been a sense where I can talk to anybody, anybody at these protests, and we can smile at each other, and there's no reason for me to be afraid of her or him, and uh, nor, uh, you know, him or her to be afraid of me. This has never felt that way. Um, There's this great sense of like, Uh, oneness yes, and, uh, and common identity. humanity and and love really um, it's really incredible it's overwhelming really yeah and we want to uh, make sure that this gets preserved and it doesn't get torn apart by uh, the games that our political class is now going to have to play you know in order to uh, maintain its position.
can I I'm just gonna I know you have a, a, a list of um, grains of sand as we said earlier but um, about the games the political games um, the day we're recording this today there was a scuffle uh, that occurred between the forces of Hezbollah which uh, suddenly showed up on the scene and kind of uh, stirred up a little trouble what's your take on that Yeah, well, I mean, they didn't suddenly show up. Uh, uh, Nasrallah was, uh, you know, this was a little bit before Nasrallah had the speech and then a little bit after that. Um, look, first of all, I, I think that it's very easy in the country, you know, to just, for many people, the discourse is that, oh, look, Hezbollah is like the scary thing, you know, or there's this division, you know, everything would be fine, you know, if it weren't for them. I don't think this is true. Uh, I think Hezbollah's power is partly enabled by the weakness of this government, okay? So first of all, we have to know, you know, that Um, we shouldn't succumb to false dichotomies. We can't say uh, Hezbollah is good or Hezbollah is bad because uh, we can talk about specific actions. Uh, Hezbollah, you know, at one point uh, defended uh, the borders of Lebanon, the territories of Lebanon. Like, look, if you were living in a place that was being invaded and uh, the Lebanese army didn't come to defend you and Hezbollah came to defend you, then you're going to feel your affinity with Hezbollah. And that makes perfect sense. And maybe they were doing the right thing then. Um, and you don't want to say, you know, that everybody's actions are all the time bad or all the time good. You want to say there's specific actions that are good and specific actions uh, that are bad. Um, but now, you know, I mean, think about the way this Lebanon has, uh, this, this country, this Lebanon, you know, uh, or the Lebanon of a few days ago has operated. Um, anybody who belongs to any religious denomination, and I just want to point out that there's a, there's a huge plurality of religions in this country, and this is not, the country didn't form itself. The country was formed by historical forces, you know, largely, you know, external forces. Uh, and then these people who belong to different religious denominations, and religious denominations are not insignificant because they uh, give people, the individual, a sense of identity and a sense of belonging. So they have these identities and now they find themselves, tons of them, you know, uh, from very different identities. And now they're supposed to be collected under this one uh, banner, you know, the, the Lebanese flag or whatever it is. Okay. Well, now you have to kind of engage in something. So look, if I take five kids and they all come from different backgrounds and I put them in the same room, I can't just expect them all to play together. I have to set up a game which they can play together in common spaces, you know, and teach them how to share with each other. What has this country, you know, What has this government done uh, to make uh, uh, the Sunnis feel like uh, this is their Lebanon and the Shia feel like this is their Lebanon and the Christians and the Druze? It's made nobody feel like this is their Lebanon. So then, you know, when you find yourself cohabiting, you know, with others and you feel like there's no common spaces for you guys to interact or uh, to be friends with each other uh, and you're, we don't celebrate your identity, we don't have Shia Day, you know, where the Shia, you know, get to celebrate with a assets of their identity and Dirzi Day, Christian Day, you know, and whatever, right? Uh, then uh, people feel like they have to kind of hide amongst their own groups. And sure enough, this is what happens. Every group, you know, lives in its little towns and celebrates its cultural facets, but it doesn't interact with the others. And now if you at the same time are a very weak state where nobody feels like they're defended and you get a group like Hezbollah who says, oh, look, Shia people, you know, we're going to uh, be your protectors. We're going to, you know, let you express your identity and so on. on. If you're a Shia person, you definitely have a very strong motivation to uh, engage with Hezbollah and, you know, to feel friendly towards them. So, I think that the violence that happened today, this is part of a culture that has emerged 
out of a feeling of defensiveness. Uh, and I want to point out that although there was violence, there was also an unprecedented unity. You know, we saw an Australia's speech spoken in downtown and nobody held Hezbollah flag. They all held a Lebanese flag. And when the, when the Hezbollah people, you know, walked into downtown, they didn't walk in with a flag because they would have been lynched if they had walked in with a flag. So they did walk in and they did instigate violence. But also you don't want to say that the average guy, you know, on the street, you know, who is instigating violence, you know, they're, they're just being self-protective. Why you did know? they do that? Why did they walk in and instigate violence? Well, I guess because they feel like, uh, I mean, it's not that they feel, it's that Nasrallah explicitly, you know, said, uh, I don't think, you know, we want to collapse this government and so on. And so this makes them feel like, oh, you know, maybe these protesters are now antagonistic. There's also a lot of rumors that go around, rumors like, oh, you know, this is being supported by Western forces. What? By by any external forces? Really, that that's a joke. Anybody who's been on the ground will have to see that that's a joke because the people are so diverse who are on the ground that there's no way that they're all being funded by any single. single group or multiple groups. It really looks like they just they're coming down uh, on their own. You know, this was it was clear that it was they were coming down on their own, and it's clear that nobody has gotten any additional funding somehow magically from anybody. Who anyway cares about what's happening in Lebanon? You think anybody cares? We're a tiny little hole. If anybody really wanted uh, to uh, fund anything, they would just fund a war against us and just smash us to bits and just take over. That's what they would do. So. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I don't even want to kind of engage in the discourse of, oh, you know, there was this uh, uh, violence and, oh, there's, you know, now fear or whatever. Uh, no, I think that there are misunderstandings that are happening, uh, understandable misunderstandings. And I think that it's our duty right now as the Lebanese people as a whole. Yeah, uh, to focus Shia. on the unity of, yes, of the Yes, and to people. also, you know, create this counter discourse where we create these mechanisms of we have a common space in yeah. which to interact there's no problem with you you know being Shia or Sunni or mm -hmm. whatever you are you know uh, you don't have any problems with coexisting uh, anybody it's who's telling a, you it's almost a Gandhi-esque approach I might say because it's like um, facing all the conflicts with with a, a huge amount of love and peace, yes. which is what Gandhi did, and in some ways that's exactly what's happening here, even in the face of this you yes, know in, in, this attempt to disrupt in a violent way. It was faced with with nonviolence, and it was actually it's actually often more effective um, in the big picture. But let's continue with mm -hmm. some of the other issues uh, at play here, because obviously this is a huge one, um, Hezbollah and the uh, kind of alliances without, within the government, which we're not going to get too much into. But so what are some of the other failures of the state which have led to this moment? Maybe I should just also say a little bit about the people, you know, because um, in a way, one of the things that happened is that uh, uh, we... Uh, there was also an element of fear uh, that had held the people uh, post the civil war. Uh, look, you know, I mean, this is very normal. In a way, we kind of display many of our older generation, many of the people who lived here during the civil war, display symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, uh, they are, uh, uh, they, in their minds, uh, any small conflict reminds them of the time that there was a big conflict. Uh, if at some point you confronted a man and you got into a fight with him and then you were hurt really badly, then the next 
time you see a man and he acts slightly aggressive, you're going to think, oh no, I'm going to get hurt really badly, you know? This is just normal human a normal human reaction. So people are afraid of any instigation of antagonism because they're afraid of the re-emergence of a civil war. Uh, so we really do display these kind of psychological, you know, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. But I think that what has, you know, helped us overcome or helped us overcome this, I don't want to say it's overcome, you know, I want to say that what helped us today, you know, overcome it is that, you know, the situation has become so bad that we're, uh, it's very hard to be afraid of the thing that happened in the past when your present is so uh, miserable. Dire. Yeah, so I just wanted to kind of add that, I mean... If you want to just talk about what's happening today, you know, there's there's been, I mean, there's been fuel shortages. There was no bread being sold on one of the days. You're there talking were, about during the protest or, pre or these prior? These are just just before the protest yeah. in the last few weeks, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, there was, you know, the fires that were met with no response at all from our government because it turns out they're not maintaining the helicopters. But these helicopters have probably gotten some funding to be maintained. Where's this funding gone? You just left the people to burn. Uh, and then you throw around conspiracy about, you know, the Syrians or whoever, you know, burning us. Uh, guys, there's global warming happening and you're a country that has refused to even engage minimally in a recycling project. The, a country, by by this I mean a government. Um, their, their failures have become so, so enormously numerous that it's embarrassing. In the last two elections, we've had explicit bribery, you know, multiple recorded, hundreds of recorded instances by an NGO that's independent from the government the Lebanese Association for Democratic Elections, uh, and publicized by the local media that there was bribery, that there was cheating, that there was theft of, of votes. How are we supposed to trust this uh, government? There's nothing for us. Uh, uh, and in a way, they were given a chance. They were really handed a chance in the parliamentary elections, and they still failed. So um, the people obviously are uniting around these issues. The economy, you know, is failing. There's obviously no approach that's positive towards um, handling issues related to the environment. There's a non-project. That's what they are. They're non a non-project. Yeah. They have a long list of non-projects. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's absolutely <laughs> but what are the, true. What are some of the other issues that uh, you think are common amongst all the groups? I mean, you mentioned education, uh, the economy, um, the environment. We don't have, uh, you know, they don't dispose of garbage properly. There's the there no such thing as recycling. What are the, some of the other things? So, I mean, you know, I think that the the most common facet that you see today is that everybody has largely woken up to the fact that the sectarian political system uh, is no good. It's not helping them. It's not helping anyone. It's not helping anybody maintain their identity. Everybody has lost their identity rather than anybody gain their identity. And so... How uh, so? Well, I mean, we've been applying it for since the end of the civil war, and our situation has only progressively gotten worse. You're so, talking about sectarian you know, laws. Which laws specifically are you referring to that are the non-application of our constitution and the non-application of the Taif Agreement? Both of these things require that uh, the sects, it's not the religious sects, you know, will remain, and it's going to remain part of Lebanese identity. There's many religions, and that we want to have these religions. After all, anywhere else, you would think of this as as uh, plur pluralism, you know, a positive pluralism, you know, we, we welcome coexistence of multiple identities. Um, but it's one thing for that to exist and another thing for this to be part of the government. It can't, it's absurd that I've lived all my life in Beirut and during the municipal elections, I couldn't vote in Beirut because I vote in the Shouf, you know, where my religious denomination uh, is. Uh, it's absurd that our government forces you as a baby to have a religion place 
test on your ID card. That's not acceptable. You don't you commit to a religion when you become 18 or whenever. You don't commit to a religion when you're born. You know, it doesn't pass by blood and certainly doesn't pass by sperm either. You know, uh, which is another thing that they have a, a real problem with. You know, just the way they. Um, systematically abuse women basically this this country systematically abuses women in lots of different ways can you give examples okay well i mean so uh, for one thing even our national anthem is sexist uh, in it it says blah 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 men betun lil rijal men betun lil rijal okay do men grow on trees no, they grow out of women. They come out of women, you know. We somehow have this delusional idea that this is, uh, th there's just men and men show up. Um, and it's, you know, people are often, you know, fond of pointing out, you know, that sometimes we say man when we mean human and that includes women, you know. Uh, but sometimes we also you do the reverse. We say humanity is violent when actually we should more appropriately say men are violent. Because if you look at the history of humanity, it's men who have car carried out the majority of wars. And it's not a surprise that they would carry out the majority of wars because uh, think about it. Uh, look, a war needs to run on something and what it runs on is soldiers and now the question is how expensive is a soldier if you're a man it's very easy for you to think that a soldier is not very expensive because men just show up around you uh, but if you're a woman you have much more clear sense uh, of how expensive a man is why because every man and every woman on earth has had to come out of a woman uh, a mother has had to carry this child and you know uh, for for nine months and then you know have it as a baby and then take care of it and that's how there was a man you know hanging around so really war is a men's project and you know when we say humanity is warsome we should more appropriately say men are warsome this warsome culture that is uh, propagated here you know in in lebanon uh is is being made at the in here in lebanon and across the whole world uh ha is being uh, carried by women women are paying the price for men's wars this that is an interesting uh, kind of analysis of how you're saying basically that men don't value life the same way than women do because it's women that have to go through the process of, of yeah, they have. have they, they, life. Men don't just grow on trees like and our national it. anthem seems mm. to think. It's an uh, interesting uh, philosophical approach. Um, but what are some of the actual laws uh, that you're referring to? Because I know that there are some that are contentious. Yeah, like a woman is not allowed to pass her nationality to her own child. Uh, that's that's absurd. <laughs> Why? Where? If, so, for example, if a Lebanese woman marries a British man. Yeah. and has a child, then he's, he's not, not Lebanese. Yeah, or she's not Lebanese. Or she. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Which is yeah, a which strange is, which, concept. Yeah, which is, which is absurd. Literally, you know, they must think that... And then, of course, with the legal... Uh, there's also issues with the legal courts, um, with parenting laws. I'm not sure if you can explain a little bit about that. Indirectly, the, the country has preserved uh, this sectarian uh, system uh, by making sure that civil marriage doesn't happen. Uh, because in this way, you can uh, make it so that you have to be married under a particular sort of religious law. Uh, and very often, these religious laws are not, you know, they don't treat the man and the woman equally. They uh, uh, put the woman below the man, you know, in the rights that she has to ask for divorce, to keep her children, etc., etc. Uh, but also, this makes sure that the country, you know, will remain divided among sex because it's very hard to maintain a sectarian system if uh, you're going to be, you know, half, um, my mom's Christian, my dad is Dirzi or whatever else. Uh, so by by doing this, they're also uh, ensuring 
sharing and like ensuring that they can keep propagating this sort of system. So, I mean, that's one thing. There's so many violations. I mean, there's there's also like a, a lack of educating of the men, you know, making women feel like um, they have to they have to look like uh, objects, attractive objects to men. This is part of the Lebanese culture. They're simultaneously have to look like uh, sexualized objects, but also have to be these pure sexualized objects, you know, because otherwise they turn out to be whores. That's uh, horrible. That's uh, put so much pressure, psychological pressure on so many of them. And you see it um, manifested in ways that are harmful to both the men and the women in, in this culture. There's no sexual education. Let's just put it that way, you know. There's also like an incapacity to talk about uh, sexual identities or sexual orientation. There's it's like somewhere between bistahu, they're like you know shy about it, you know, and somewhere uh, and and also like tormented about it, you mm-hmm. know. So they just like they just like become antagonistic. I'm um, gonna throw out this idea. I think that. This is all happening in part due to the fact that there's so much information available now uh, because of technology that that young people today are just no longer accepting these old systems because they're aware of what's existing in other parts of the world, which is, uh, you know, people expect to be treated equally and fairly. And they're expecting this for themselves now. And it's just no longer acceptable uh, not to be treated that way. So that's just my take on it. But I want to ask you this last question. As far as you know, as someone who's kind of involved with, you know, uh, local political groups. Are there groups in place who can serve as new partners to existing forces like Hezbollah and um, with uh, those who have alliances in uh, surrounding countries, those that support Lebanon? Are there existing groups in place that would be ready to kind of take over should the current uh, system kind of dissolve? Yes, I think there's lots of uh, really educated people and really sincere people who don't have to be all that educated uh, that really have uh, the country's as a whole's interests uh, in place. Uh, and uh, they've been, you know, working on positive projects. We saw this in the parliamentary elections. There was the large group Kulnawatani in Beirut. There was Libeladi. There's just been so many different groups. There's Beirut Medinati as well, you know, which people... Uh, really shouldn't downplay the fact that we had municipal elections where we ran with a list of people that was half men, half women, which contained people from different socioeconomic classes with different ability conditions. Like this was, this is admirable anywhere on earth, you know, not just uh, in today's, on today's earth, you know, not just in Lebanon. So there's really a lot of people who um, are working and want to work towards a better Lebanon. I mean, for one thing, you know, if, if for no other reason then that uh, for many of us uh, uh, living in this Lebanon has been a very difficult thing to do and so one way to you know kind of pull yourself out of this is to educate yourself and then eventually to leave and then to come back and as you're pointing out uh, now the world is so interconnected so people have new ideas I think that there's yes there's lots of people you know who are ready to take over uh, gradually from the current systems in a way this is you know really interesting to think of this in terms of a generation dispute 
In a way, what's happening is that the new generation of Lebanese are having a dispute with the old generation who are much more traditional than we are. Uh, and really, uh, in a way, they're just being re- like clingy babies, you know. They're uh, not being able to understand that, yes, you guys had your time and the civil war was tragic. Uh, and uh, maybe they feel like there's a lot of blame against them for having the civil war. But of course, we also understand that there was lots of forces at play during that time and now you know they just have to kind of pass the buck to us you know and we have to take over um yeah pass Um, the torch well i'm afraid we're gonna have to leave it here thank you so much for stopping by uh thank you nadia uh i hope that the next time we record this uh we'll be in a completely new lebanon it's a pleasure to have you that's it for now i hope you enjoyed this time we spent together Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something or got inspired in some way. I know I did. If you did, please subscribe to the podcast and let us know what you think by leaving a comment here or on our social media at hakawati.fm or themensroom.show. Take care. <laughs>